Well, um, we are going through the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, here, here's what happens when you go through a book of the Bible um, verse by verse. Things will come up that uh, would never ever come up before if, if, we, if we didn't go through a book of the Bible and if we instead went, went topical. So here at the mission, we do topical sermons like prayer or family and marriage, but we also like to go through um, books um, kind of verse for verse. And so here's what happened in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.10 talks about the practice of homosexuality. And so we spent two weeks really wrestling with what, what does the Bible really say about this subject. And then we come to a text which um, I would say is one of, if not the most divisive text um, in the local church. And that is specifically uh, where Paul talks about women and their role in the local church. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off just reading this text so you feel the weight of it. Um, And it's helpful to read the text rather than me just say it because um, we need to understand this isn't the, the time for Zach's opinion to be spoken. This is time for us to Read the word and, and hear what it has to say. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, if you're new here, second timer, um, it, you came on a great morning here. I've never preached on this subject, so uh, this is, this is going to be radical. Uh, I want to start in 1 Timothy chapter 3, though, to get the context right. Um, here's what Timothy said, or excuse me, Paul says to Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, what's that word? Okay, we're going we're gonna to circle around back to that during this sermon a couple of times. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Here's our context. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a younger pastor in a church called Ephesus. What had happened in the church of Ephesus is there were certain teachers, um, certain kind of like wannabe teachers, and then quite possibly even certain leaders in the church of Ephesus that instead of preaching and proclaiming the gospel, they instead were preaching and teaching other things. And so Paul is writing to Timothy really as, as a mentor of sorts to say, Here, here's how you ought to pastor in your context where, where some things are not going well, where there's some leadership and some teaching that's being abused. And specifically, what Paul does in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3 is he speaks specifically about what the, the, the church government, if you will, ought to look like. What, what the roles of women and men ought to look like in the local church. And so he says, hey, I, hey, I don't know if I'm going to get to you, Timothy. So if I delay, I, I'm writing you these things about the local church and how people ought to live and behave and act and lead so that if I delay, you know what you're doing. And so when we read this very heavy text in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 11, that's our context. Paul is not talking about women in government, women running for president, or women 
uh, in a collegiate setting of teaching or women teaching in elementary school or high school. He's not talking about women in business. He's speaking about only women in the local church. Tracking? Just local church. So here's what Paul says to Timothy. Let's feel the weight of this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's how I want to start. What did we just read? Starts with a B. The Bible. Okay. Just want us to make sure we're all playing from the same playbook here. So, if it's in the Word of God, we can't just toss it aside, can we? We have to engage with this text. Don't we? We must engage with this text as as uncomfortable as it may feel. Just imagine you have to teach on this subject, friends. You you ought to be praying for me right now, friends. That's what you should be doing. So here's what I want to do for our time. I want to give you a quick little roadmap. There are three main questions I want us to wrestle with. What exactly is this quietness and is this kind of forbidding of teaching that Paul is speaking about? Is it like a blanket statement? Completely quiet and no teaching. How about this, um, this, uh, forbid, this forbidding of um, exercising authority over a man? What exactly is Paul talking about here? And then this word submission, every, everyone's favorite S word, right? Submission, right there. We all love it. What does Paul mean by this? So we're going to talk about those three things, but I want to start with the end in mind. Because what you'll notice is, verse 11, verse 12, Paul makes these comments that today in our culture are a bit um, divisive and a bit shocking, but Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just say, women do this, women don't do this, and then moves on. He gives a reason for his argument, doesn't he? Verse 13, verse 14, he says, this is why I'm saying this, and he points back to creation in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And so I want us to start with the end in mind. I want us to start with Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 for the basis of Paul's arguments. But before we even get to that, three very quick clarifications that need to be made as we walk into this text. The first one is this. For the mission church, the word of God is the ultimate authority over our life. So there's stuff that come up in this book that run contrary to a lot of people's, even Christians, a lot of their experiences, a lot of their desires, and a lot of their wants. Here at the Mission Church, we take every experience, every desire, and every want that we have. We believe that they all have merit, but we take all of those and we submit them to Scripture. This is the ultimate authority on our life of what's right and what's wrong and what it looks like to walk in godliness and walk in the gospel. Uh, Second clarification is this. You might go, hey, what about equality, right? Come a long way, Zach. What about about, um, women's rights? What about civil rights? Um, Philippians chapter 2, this amazing passage, um, talks about how you and I ought to live. 
And, and it has to do with our attitude. And Paul says, we ought to have the same exact attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then Paul begins to unpack the attitude that Jesus had. Namely, that he gave up his rights of equality, is the word that is used, equality with God in heaven, and came down to earth, put on flesh, and was willingly nailed to a cross for our sins. In other words, Christ took his Rights laid them aside for you and I. At the center of the gospel, friends, is Christ laying aside his rights. At the center of us walking in the gospel is that our identity is not found in us being American or American, whatever you want to say it, but our identity, first and foremost, is in the gospel. This is not our home. And so what that means for you and I and what that means for me is there are certain civil rights that I have, I could rightly exercise. I do not exercise them because my treasure is Jesus Christ. It's not this country. Doesn't mean I don't act like a patriot. Not, not the New England patriot, but doesn't mean, I, doesn't mean I'm not patriotic. 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 It... It just means my identity is in the gospel. And I take my rights and I subject them to the gospel. And then here's the last clarification that needs to be made. You might say, and this is a major argument in this text, probably the most significant argument in this text. This is just culture, Zach. This is a very patriarchal culture that Paul is speaking to. And what Paul is doing as um, a way to not be conflicting with um, outsiders is, is to set up a kind of church government where unbelievers will look in and not be offended. And, and, and if women were in the role of elders in this day, there'd be outsiders that would be extremely offended. This Paul's just rolling with culture. That's all he's doing. Here's what I love about that argument. What's really great about it is if it's true, we can read this passage and just go, it's cultural, let's move on, thank God. We, that's, all, that's all we can do. That's, that, that would be really nice for a morning like this, but there's a big, big problem with that argument. Paul does not make this argument from culture. He makes the argument from creation. He says, look back to Genesis. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. So, Genesis 2, before I read that, I'm just going to pray for us, and, and you are welcome to not listen to a word of my prayer and to just pray for me instead. Father, I don't joke in making that statement. This is a tough text, and it's a tough text in our culture, and, and as I shared with Pastor Dan this text this morning, he, he just, his prayer for me was so beautiful, and so I just want to pray what he said, that this morning, nothing more and nothing less of what your word says would be spoken. And Father, I think that this text, like every text, must always be approached with the gospel in mind. That we do not walk in what you've called us to do out of duty we walk in what you've called us to do because we are marveling and overwhelmed by the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. That we are sinners and have no right to salvation. And yet, you gave your son, Jesus Christ, up on the cross for us. 
And so, Father, I, I don't just want this text to be spoken. I want the gospel to be spoken this morning. Nothing less, nothing more than what this text says, Jesus. We pray all these things, and everyone said, Genesis chapter 2. All right, we got to get rolling. Then the Lord God said, this is chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, if you remember, you Bible scholars in here, um, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, what is God doing? He is creating. Wow, we got some A-plus students in here. Awesome, right in that center part there. He's creating. Now, next question for you. At the end of each day, he looks at his creation and he says something. He looks at his creation and then he says, it is good. He creates man, looks at man and says, it is not good. Not good. Yeah, not good. Single guy said that. It's not good. And then what happens next? I will make him a, what's that word? Let's play together. A helper fit for him. Why this language of helper? Look at verse 20, the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a, what's that word? Helper fit for him. So here's what God is doing. God is creating Eve for Adam, and as he creates her, he uses a kind of language that defines the kind of role she is created to have in the household, namely to be a helper to Adam, that Adam is to be the servant leader in the home, and that Eve is to be the affirming helper. Now, um, a lot of people, not just women, but even men, can chafe up against this language of helper and and kind of see it as a, a position of inferiority. This Hebrew word for helper used 21 times in the Old Testament. 16 of the 21 times it refers to God as our helper. So to buy into this idea that this is inferiority is to say that God is inferior because he is used and described as helper 16 different times. And here's what I want you to notice. He creates the woman as the role of being a helper to her husband. Has sin entered the world yet or not? No. So in God's good, and and I think we could all agree, perfect plan, he creates man to be the servant leader as a husband and the wife to be the affirming helper to the husband. And then what happens in Genesis 3? Sin breaks into the world. Eve is deceived, eats the fruit, Adam takes a bite of the fruit too. And and then, here's what's amazing about Genesis 3. It's the gospel. It is the first picture of the gospel. What happens? Man sins, right? What does man do? Hey, God, I did it. God, I did it. No, he runs. And he hides in shame, in guilt. And what does God do? God's like, darn right, you better hide. Shame on you. God comes and chases him down, does he not? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And forgives and gives 
grace and clothes Adam and Eve. First picture of the gospel. And then God says, but here's the deal. Now that you've sinned, there's some curses that are going to come upon humanity for the rest of humanity. And so look at this, the different curses. We're just going to look at one, but in Genesis 3, specifically verse 16, the very end of it, um, God is speaking a curse to Eve as a woman that is now in the world because of sin. And here's the curse. Um, verse 16, very end of it. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is spoken in the language of a curse. In other words, God is saying from here on out because of sin, this beautiful, beautiful created roles of husband, you be the servant leader, wife, you be the affirming helper, now are going to be twisted and perverted and ruined forevermore. And now there's going to be this ongoing struggle for leadership in the home. More than that, it is going to be the, the, the natural acting of man of instead of being a servant leader in the home, he is naturally going to draw towards either being a, a very passive, do-nothing male leader, or he's going to go to the other end of the spectrum and be a domineering, unloving, uncaring leader, or maybe somewhere messed up in between. That's what sin did. And likewise... It ruined the role of the wife, where the wife is no longer going to be apt to continually affirm and be the helper of her husband. Now she's naturally going to be apt to question, maybe manipulate, and be domineering over her husband. This is what sin did. But then... When you read the New Testament, something interesting happens. When you read the New Testament, it talks about husbands and wives. You begin to see a redeeming of these roles and a recapturing of the creation through the gospel. So, so remember, how did these roles get messed up and ruined? One word starts with S. Sin. Jesus has come and has conquered sin. And so the Apostle Paul starts talking about um, the role of a husband and a wife. And he says, guys, the game has changed. Jesus Christ has come and he has conquered sin. So if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin and the curses that come through sin. You are set free. And so... Through the gospel, we are able to redeem what we've been cursed in Genesis 3 and recapture what God created in Genesis 2. And so, what does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 22? Let, let, let's just, let's do this together. Let's start with the wives here, um, or women in here. Repeat after me, see if you can fill in the blank. Wives... Okay, you said it, not me. Wives, submit, they got real quiet. Come on, guys, play along. Wives, to your, 
All right, husbands, your time to play. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. But does Paul simply go, hey, here's the deal, ladies. Wives, submit to your husbands, period. Husbands, you love your wives, period. It's just that easy. Go and do it. Does Paul do that? No. Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands because they deserve it. They're so good to you. Okay, you should all be looking at me weird like, I don't think that's in there. (laughs) That's definitely not an experience I've had. Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. Do it because of the gospel. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. (laughs) And I love Paul. Paul doesn't just leave it at like, husbands, love your wives as as Christ loved the church. He keeps going. He goes, and and just in case you get confused, here's how Christ loved the church. He, He put himself up on a cross to save the church. It's pretty violent, friends. The role of a husband is a violent role, and it's violence against your pride. And so let let me just, a word here, because this is kind of a lot about women, and I I just, I I think that we need to bring men in this too. Can I just be honest? I think one of the biggest reasons why women, even Christian women, chafe up against this role to submit to their husbands, even out of reverence for Christ, the reason why they might fight or chafe against is because historically, husbands within the church have just not really knocked it out of the park. I mean, like a single at best, usually fouled off way right. Just have not done great. And so wives are just going, why in the world would I submit to my husband if he didn't love Jesus? Why would I submit to my husband if I'm the spiritual leader of my household? Why would I submit to my husband when, when it's, it takes forever to get him to go to church? In fact, it's, just, it's me bringing the kids. Why would I submit to my husband when he comes home? You know what he does? Sits on the couch. Why? So husband, let me just give you three things. And, and I, I'm painting broad strokes. I, I realize that many of you as husbands, you are honoring your wife and loving your wife as Christ loves the church. But let me just give you three quick things of, of what it would look like to love and honor and care for your spouse as Christ loved, honored, cared, and gave himself up for the church. The first one is this. What if... What if you started every single morning getting on your knees and simply praying, God, I need, through the beauty of the gospel and the power of your Holy Spirit, I need the power to lay down every desire, want, and need I have to serve every want, desire, and need my wife has as long as her wants, desires, and needs are according to the gospel. What if you just prayed that prayer? God, give me the power to do that. Or or what if you just said, God, allow me to love my spouse so sacrificially today that by the end of the day, she would not see me, she would see Jesus. I have some women nodding their heads in here. That'll preach, ladies. Husbands, here's what it also might look like. Every single day, every single day, pray 
and read the Bible. You should be on your knees for your family daily. I think a lot of wives would willingly, longingly be a submissive helper to their husband if they walked down every morning and saw their husband in the word and in prayer. So do that. And then thirdly, lead your wife in prayer three times a week. Husbands, if all you get out of this sermon is this, that's all I'm asking. Lead your wife in prayer, not at a meal. Lead your wife in prayer three times a week. That's it. But here's what I want you to see. This is all driven by the gospel. Not out of duty. Not even out of just mere obedience, but rather out of a a beauty and a wonder of Jesus Christ. And you might be sitting here going, Zach, sounds like you got a bit of a cop-out sermon here because you're just totally avoiding 1 Timothy 2 right now. You're right. Let's close in prayer. No. (laughs) What have we been talking about? Have we not been talking about the roles within the household? We've been talking about the role of a husband and the role of a wife in the household. I do not believe that is ironic in any way that over three times in 1 Timothy, especially chapter 3, Paul refers to the church as the household of God. And so for us to ignorantly think that the roles within the house, husband and wife, have nothing to do with the roles within the local church, it would, it would be for us to completely misunderstand the text because that's where Paul's making his argument from. He's talking about the leadership in the house of God and he points to the house and the roles God had created, male and female. So, let's get to our three questions. Let me read the text one more time. And we have that background to lead us into this text. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. First of all, what, is, what exactly is this quietness and, and forbidding of teaching that, that, is, that is happening here? Um, first of all, never, ever, ever, ever get your theology from one verse, friends. Always let the Bible interpret the Bible. In other words, if, if you find a text like this that seems, wow, is it really saying exactly what it's saying? Go to other verses in the Bible that talk about the same thing and bring them together. So here's what we know in 1 Corinthians 11.5. Paul is um, calling, encouraging, and, and making it known that he wants women to pray in the church. You can't be quiet and pray at the same time at least in the context Paul is praying for. He also calls women to prophesy out loud in the local church. So we know for a fact that Paul is not making a blanket statement of, ladies, once you walk into the church, it's time for you not to talk the whole entire time. He's not saying that. He's obviously talking about being quiet in a particular context. 
We'll get to that context in a second. Let's, let's wrestle with this not permitting a woman to teach. Titus 2.3, um, Paul tells young Titus, another pastor, um, says, hey, I want the women in the church to teach the younger women. So there's teaching happening. Um, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, I believe it is, um, Paul tells Timothy, hey, I want you to remember what you were taught before. Paul is explicitly pointing to what Timothy had learned from the scriptures from his grandmother and mother. Thirdly, Acts 18.26, there's this guy named Apollos. This one's for free right here. I think he wrote the book of Hebrews. Wrestle with that one on your own. Apollos, when he first began, began ministry, um, he, he, he had some aspects about the gospel that were missing. And it says that Priscilla, a lady... And Aquila, her husband, pulled him aside and started teaching him. By the way, I think it's worth noting that Priscilla is mentioned first, not Aquila. You might go, oh, semantics, what does that even mean? Read the New Testament, and what you'll find is anytime there's a list of names, there seems to be that the first one listed is the one who has maybe a little bit more um, um, prominence, if you will. Of all the 12 apostles, who's always listed first? Peter. When, when, when Paul and Barnabas um, begin to do ministry together, it's not Paul and Barnabas, it's Barnabas and Paul. When they're sent out on their first missionary journey, it's not Paul and Barnabas, it's Barnabas and Paul. And then kind of weirdly, right in the middle of all of what's going on in the book of Acts, Luke, our author of the book of Acts, he switches it. It's no longer Barnabas and Paul. It's Paul and Barnabas. So I I do not think it's semantics to go, ah, you know, the lady was mentioned first. It means nothing. I think that did mean something. So here you see teaching within the context of the local church by women. So to say that what Paul is outlawing or forbidding is a blanket statement of ladies are not allowed to teach ever, ever, ever in the local church would be wrong. It's speaking specifically of not teaching in a specific context will get there. Here's our biggest help. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Chapter 3 is literally the next section. There were no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks when this was written. One fluent letter. You know what Paul talks about in chapter 3? Eldership, deacons. Do you know the two prominent roles that Paul points out are for the, for the elders? The elders are called to exercise two significant roles. It's highlighted especially in 1 Peter and in Titus 1. You know what the, the two roles are? To teach. And, and it's not this idea that they'd come up on a Sunday morning and, and, and teach. It's this idea that they have enough um, wisdom and knowledge in the scriptures and in the gospel that they are able, whether it's a one-on-one conversation, Sunday morning, community group, whatever it might be, they are able to teach the gospel clearly. That's one of their roles. Their second role, you know what it is? It's to exercise authoritative oversight in the church. Those are the two prominent roles of an elder. So hold on to that thought for a second. 
If you read the seven verses that Paul writes on about eldership in chapter 3, 1 through 7, seven different times he refers to an elder in the masculine, he or his. In fact, there's never ever any mention in all of scripture um, of, of an elder in the feminine. In fact, Paul says an elder is to be the husband of one wife. That is extremely helpful in coming back to chapter 2. What are the two prominent roles an elder has? Teach. Authoritative oversight. What are the two things that Paul does not permit a woman to do? Teach. Oversight. And so what seems extremely, extremely likely is that the context that Paul is speaking about when he says a woman ought to be quiet and ought to be submissive and ought not to teach or exercise authority, the context in which he is specifically speaking to is eldership. Namely, Paul is saying it is not a calling from God for a woman to exercise the position of an elder in the church just as a husband is called to be the leader in the home. And here's what I want to do. Let's talk about submission for a second because I feel like that really ties this together. Before we talk about submission, we need to talk about what is meant by authoritative oversight? What does that look like in, 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 in the eldership? Here's what 1 Peter says, and I, I believe that 1 Peter chapter 5 is the most helpful text on, on eldership, at least in exercising eldership. Um, here's what Peter writes. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, so there's the role, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So one of my favorite pastors, theologians, is John Piper. And he's extremely helpful in this subject. He actually gives a, a definition for from Scripture uh, of what it means by authority in eldership, what that ought to look like. So this is the definition that he gives. I believe it is from, it is a correct representation from scripture and what we've talked about. Authority in eldership is the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. That's what the mission church eldership ought to look like. What about submission? Again, John Piper, I believe, reflects scripture when, when he gives this definition. Submission is the divine calling 
of the rest of the church, both male and female, to honor and affirm the leadership of the elders and to be equipped by them for the hundreds, if not thousands, of various ministries available to men and women in and for the service of Christ. And here's what might be the most disappointing, frustrating, I don't know the right word for it, is how people, not just women, how, how people can, can take this text and read it as, a, as an undercutting of the kind of kingdom impact women can make for the gospel. I hope you see that's not what it's saying at all. When you look at the mission church, I would say some of the most impactful people in the mission church here are certain women that are serving in ministry. Our children's ministry in the past year has literally almost doubled in size. Christina leads that ministry, and I I tell her very often, I'm like, you need to know that God is using you in mighty ways to grow the mission church and to grow these kids in the gospel. The majority of our um, volunteers in children's ministry, ladies, by the way, men, if you're not connected into a ministry or you're not serving, we need more guys in that area. Justine organizes all of our children's curriculum, very gospel-centered. Liz Davis, we just brought her on as our youth director here. We brought her on in August. Two weeks later, um, a a young lady, a high schooler, in all of her brilliant wisdom, came to me and said, Zach, you need to know that bringing Liz on is the best decision the Mission Church has ever made. And, and, And... and like, I love the bold statement there. I won't say who it was, Ariana. Um, but, but I think there's some truth to that. Or, or Alicia leading us in worship. Or I think of Nancy leading the prayer team. Or Maria organizing the hospitality. I think of all the things that Robin does here. Or the things that Brooke's done here. I think of all the things that Carrie has done here. I mean, I could just go on and on of the massive impact Ladies have made here at the Mission Church the Bible study that Amy led and Leon helped with. I mean, on and on and on and on I could go. In no way is this text undercutting the role and the significance um, that a woman can make for the sake of the gospel. It's just saying, just as God has called the husband to Be the sacrificial servant leader in the home in the same way God has called men who are gifted and called to eldership to walk in those responsibilities in loving, sacrificial service. And I'll close by just simply saying this. If you're here and you're like... I, there's just something in you that, that irks you or it makes your blood boil, whatever you want to call it. I, I'll just say two things. The first thing is this. I think that's natural. I, I think that that's very natural. We live in a culture that tells you this better make your blood boil. And the second thing I would say to that is if, if it does make your blood boil, I would just ask you, what is it that's driving that emotion? It, is, it, is it what you're reading in the scripture that's driving that emotion? 
Or you just, you're reading in scripture that it's saying the complete opposite of what's been said here. Or is what's driving that emotion that's irking you a little bit is, is maybe just your upbringing, culture. I, I have people in my life that I love and care about and, and if they were here, they might be a little bit irked. And so I, I would just ask you, what is it that irks you? And, and guys, as we leave here, we must... Remember that what drives us as a church is, is not what is culturally feel good. I bet we could probably get more people here at the Mission Church if we took a different stance. I have someone I love dearly that was um, a part of our leadership early on that said you, you should change your stance because you're going you're gonna to lose people because of it. And I said, well, I mean, I, I just... I feel like we got to walk in line with Scripture, and I just have a hard time believing that Scripture isn't teaching this. And he said, I know, but I still think that you should change it because you're going to lose people. And we, and we might. And we might. But guys, I want us to be a church that not only walks in line with what this says, as hard as it might be, but that we would be a church that is passionately driven by the gospel. And that everything that we do and everything that is said in these scriptures, that we would not walk in them as an act of duty, as an act of, well, the Bible says it, so yeah, I guess we should do first, you know, Timothy chapter 2, but that we would walk in it out of reflecting and marveling over the gospel and over Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ can be nailed to the cross for my sins and give me eternal life in heaven, I'm okay setting aside my rights and my feelings and my experiences for the sake of making Him my greatest treasure by doing what He's called us to do. And I... I feel like that's what it all traces back to that, guys. doesn't matter if you're talking about women, homosexuality, premarital sex. Just name your cultural topic. It all goes back to, are we going to walk in line with the great God that we see in the Bible and what he's called us to? And my hope is, is the resounding answer is yes. Let's, let's pray. Father, I, I pray for those maybe who, who are maybe a little bit irked by this or maybe someone's listening online and, and is trying not to throw something. I pray that, that they, would, they would pull me aside, they'd pull Dan aside and, and talk about this. That this would not be a subject that, um, that unifies the church, but a, a subject that more greatly unifies the church. Father, above all, we want to be a church that does everything in our power and our ability to reenact the gospel, to live the gospel, to walk in the gospel, 
to live in such a way that our greatest treasure would not be our, our experiences or not be our feelings, but that our greatest treasure would be you, Jesus Christ, that we would use every treasure you've given us to show the world we treasure you more, even if it's cultural, divisive subjects, that we would use them to show that you are our king. Just pray these things in your name. Amen.